Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. My guest today is an experienced lawyer who mainly works in criminal law. Leighton Gray is currently in court with a civil claim against the Alberta government, specifically the Chief Medical Officer of Health, regarding COVID restrictions imposed during the first three waves of the pandemic. He joins me today for an update on the case and other suits making their way through the judicial system. Well, Leighton, it's great to have you with me again. How have you been doing? I'm well, thank you for asking, sir. Well, we are very interested to uh, to hear about some of the results that have taken place. But before we went to air, you and I were just chatting, and you made said something very interesting to me. You said I may be overly optimistic. Would you restate what you and I were talking about there? Well, I I tend to be a, a cup half full person anyway, and that has a lot to do with my my faith life. Um, and as I told you the last time I was on your program, I see what we're in right now as a good versus evil uh, struggle. And I don't think that that is a, I don't think that's an, an oversimplification. I don't think it's an overstatement. The West, the Western world, Western culture is in an existential crisis right now. Uh, in fact, one could even call it uh, World War III. Um, and um, in fact, I just read a wonderful book. Uh, about this uh, by uh, Douglas Murray. Uh, it's called The War on the West. In any event, uh, what I was saying is um, there's, an old, there's an old adage that the left always goes too far. Yeah. Uh, they just, they, they, they don't know when, uh, when, they've, when they've won. And, uh, and they have been winning for a long time. But I think what they've done is they've gone uh, too far. The, the stated goal was was equality but now it's very clear that that the the goal of the left is not equality the goal of the left is ultimate power in the name of equality and it feels like right now um we've reached a point where the left truly has gone too far and i use the world war ii analogy of the battle of the bulge where really after after we you know we stormed the beaches of normandy and we we're advancing into europe it looked like the war was a fait accompli, was about to be over. Hitler and company marshaled all of their forces on a huge Western offensive, which um, caused a lot of damage, a lot of death, but ultimately it was, it failed and it, it, it exhausted, it exhausted the forces of, uh, of the enemy. And, and then the allies were able to go on to, to victory. And it feels like we're into this stage of the battle of the bulge where the left is pulling on all the stops if you look at, for example, the abortion debate, the full court press that's going on in Canadian politics, the shutting down of parliament. Uh, I watched a video um, this morning of uh, Mr. Singh, Jagmeet Singh, trying to get from, uh, from a store or something to his car, and he barely made it. People were in his face, angry, yelling, making uh, obscene gestures to him. Um, he's just, he and the prime minister and that whole crowd are just uh, vilified. And, and I think part of going too far is the extreme hypocrisy that's being displayed by our government. There's no even pretense of honesty anymore. I'll give you one example. The prime minister and Ms. Freeland prance around the House of Commons uh, with their masks, masks on, pretending as though 
COVID is this horrible uh, disease that's going to kill us all. But then, uh, and that's in a country that is 90% vaccinated. Um, and of course, we're surrounded by, by uh, other jurisdictions that are not treating COVID in this way at all. And of course, then they fly over to Ukraine because they want to attend a concert with Bono and Klaus Schwab. And uh, they walk around the streets of the Ukraine, a country that's only 35% vaccinated uh, with no masks on. Really? Yes. <laughs> with photographic evidence. This is a meme that's all over the internet. And so, um, I mean, it, what this is, I mean, to me, it's just uh, the, the, you know, these people have just revealed uh, ultimately what the real goal is, what the real deal is with COVID. It was never about a virus. It was never about our health. Um, you know, it was always about control. And uh, one just interesting feature by way of introduction, Leon, I, I looked at some data, some, some public polling from a few years ago, uh, where people were asked to rate uh, what aspect of government policy and information that they trusted the most. Can you guess what it was? Public health. People trusted what they heard from government concerning public health more than anything else that the government was telling them. So if people out there think that it was accidental that public health, the public health crisis was chosen as the means by which this power shift, this huge worldwide global wealth shift would occur, then uh, they're really not, it's, that's really not supported by by data. And of course, um, all the things that people like me thought, and others, people smarter than me thought a year ago or six months ago, uh, have all come to pass. I mean, just think about since the last time I talked to you about the Pfizer dump. Uh, Dr. Hinshaw, who I had the pleasure of cross-examining for three or four days uh, last month, uh, when those vaccines were introduced to Albertans, in December of 2020, she told us that they were 95% effective preventing transmission uh, and infection. And now we find out that the actual Pfizer data was 12% and that that went down to 1% in under 30 days. So we forced a whole <laughs> millions and millions and millions of people uh, to take these drugs. And then, of course, I was talking to my friend, Dr. Roger Hodkinson who is a, a Royal College uh, of Medicine alum, uh, senior medical person in Alberta. He told me something really horrifying. Think about this for a second. Um, he says that when new drugs are brought onto the market, uh, the number of deaths, the watershed is 35 deaths before that drug is recalled, okay? We've had over 100,000 deaths just in North America what a hundred thousand okay so so a drug is supposed to re be recalled after 35 deaths that is crazy. and we still have companies and governments pushing uh these vaccines and talking about more boosters and um and they aren't done talking about the battle of the bulge i mean i i predict and it's not hard to predict this that there's going to be one more uh big push in North America, another, you know, they're going to try and tell us about another COVID scare. We're already hearing about this, right? Uh, so it's not over, but I, I, but I think it's over in the sense that um, they had an opportunity to, to win. And I think ultimately 
uh, they're, they're going to lose. They were always going to lose, but uh, we're not there yet. We have to keep fighting. People have to remain uh, vigilant and fulsome in their hopes and in their faith. I talked to a lot of people and um, there is such a large group who feel like it's hopeless that they're going to win. And you said something interesting. You said they've already lost. We just need to continue to keep up, standing up, standing on guard, and getting everybody else who is in this neutral, head-down position to get up and speak up. Um, because I'm shocked how many people, it's just too late, Leon. It's just, there, there, there's just no way. There's nothing we can really do. And you have access to so much court stuff. You're seeing what's going on in the courts. You have been studying, you told me last time, literally going through documents for two years straight about this COVID thing. And you're telling me they're done and it's going to fall apart, but let's all keep going and make sure that it does. Oh, yeah, there's a job to do. It's yeah. just using my battle of the bulge example. Those soldiers still had to march. They had to get to Berlin. Okay, explain to us the Battle of the Bulge thing, because I don't think a lot well, of people are familiar with, well, with war. If you're a student of, of World War II, you know that for most of World War II, uh, the good guys, us, we were losing. Uh, you know, until the Americans came into the war, and even for the first year after the Americans came into the war, right into, up until the end of about 1942, early 1943, um, uh, the, the Nazis controlled all of Europe. We had no foothold in Europe at all until some forces landed in, in Italy. And then of course the big offensive in June of 1944. So we're talking about a six year world war. And for most of that war, the good guys were losing. It looked like they were losing. And the battle of the bulge was a situation where this followed in June of 1944, when of course everybody or should know about D-Day, uh, when they finally landed on the beaches of, of Normandy and got that huge foothold in Europe and we had forces coming up. Uh, Patton was a was a general. Patton was a famous one coming up through Italy, and uh, everybody was marching towards Berlin. But of course, uh, when they finally got into uh, into uh, Holland and were closing on the on the German homeland, uh, they ran into very very significant uh, resistance naturally. But they thought they thought that the war was going to be over, you know by uh, you know by Christmas. And uh, what happened was um, uh, Hitler and his, and his generals got together and they launched a huge offensive, an all-out offensive, all or nothing, uh, called the Battle of the Bulge. And the Bulge was a reference to uh, the movement of the line that, uh, that the Allies had reached. And they, they called it a Bulge because what it did is it, they actually broke through the Allied lines. Uh, but what happened in the aftermath of that was... Uh, it exhausted really uh, the German forces. They lost so many men, so much material, so many tanks, so many guns that really after that, there was no realistic, uh, at that point, after the Battle of the Bulge, um, uh, it, the World War II became a fait accompli. It was just a matter of time. But I think that's, it feels like, uh, and this is, I'm speaking as somebody, uh, I'm speaking metaphorically and historically, but as, as somebody who has been steeped in this stuff for now over two years, that's what it feels like right now in terms of the movement of, uh, you know, when I, and I call it really freedom versus, versus tyranny and oppression. And that's really, that's when you walk, you sort of uh, walk through all the different streams of things. Um, they're all, they all flow into one river. And that, and that's what this is. That, that river is, I'm sorry to talk in metaphors. I'm a trial lawyer. So I, sometimes I talk in pictures. Yeah, it's good. But good. everything is flowing into this good versus evil um, 
struggle and 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 some of the things that are being put forward right now simply are evil um when you look at what for example the battle in places like florida and, and elsewhere uh you know the battle over you know the don't say gay bill where teachers actually feel entitled to sexualize children in kindergarten in grade one and grade two and grade three that to get in front of a group of children and talk about their homosexual, transsexual sex lives. Um, you know, that, that doesn't sound like reading, writing, arithmetic to me. No, no. That no. sounds like uh, indoctrination into into leftist um, ideology. You remember years ago that a lot of brilliant people were saying, we won't have a World War III like World War II or World War I. It will be completely different. And some of them would have different ideas as they walked out whatever you'd want to call it, digital warfare or money and different things. And when you compare it to World War III, people with their head down, they're going to kind of go like, what? But as I am interviewing and talking with people across Western, uh, the Western world and around the world, um, it is literally not just health care. It's the rights to your children. It's freedom. It is next the green agenda that is going to try to control all corporations. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so um, I, I agree that we must stand up for freedom and do something here. Now, the Henshaw case, the civil case, um, where is that at? Well, uh, we had uh, a, a series of uh, days where we were cross-examining Dr. Hinshaw in April. And um, that occurred, um, as I said, in early to mid part of April. And then um, there was at the close of that, um, there was an interesting application because uh, throughout my cross-examination of Dr. Hinshaw, uh, I, I was talking to her about these uh, medical health officer orders that she made, which of course were very restrictive of, uh, of civil liberties and really impacted almost every aspect of Albertans lives. And uh, she did something rather surprising in the course of cross-examination in that, uh, I won't call it buck passing, but um, she said that although they were her orders and clearly they, they were because they say, I, Dina Hinshaw hereby declare, hereby order. Uh, she said that actually she was just an advisor and that she was going to premier and cabinet with advice and that they essentially told her what to put in these orders. And uh, so that she almost reduced her role to that of, of an advisor and a transcriber as a, as a medium, if you will. Now, of course, um, that does not accord very well with the uh, live experience that people in Alberta had of the pandemic where she was the face of the government. And um, when you read the transcripts of her many press conferences, and I read them all, there were over 400, and I cross-examined her on about 150 of them, um, what you discover is, uh, is really a propaganda campaign. That's what it was. And, uh, but at the, at the close of the, of the trial, what happened was um, my colleague, Mr. Jeff Rath, he, uh, he asked her, okay, tell us about your conversations with Mr. Kenny and Cabinet. Well, the lawyers for the government of Alberta were, were lying in wait. They pounced on this. They had a lengthy legal memorandum uh, 
that was uh, carefully documented and sourced that they had been holding on to for over two months and never provided to opposing counsel. And they said, mm. oh, no, she doesn't have to answer these questions because this gets into what is called executive privilege. Now, executive privilege is, uh, is a concept uh, which is very poignant right now because uh, the same situation is happening in Ottawa with the prime minister where we're, ha we're having this public inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're invoking the same, the same thing there where they're refusing to disclose, to divulge publicly documents and of conversations surrounding that. So what happened was the, the Alberta government lawyers said, no, no, uh, she can't answer that. And they, and they said to the judge, um, if you rule that she must answer these questions and reveal the answers, we're going to appeal that decision. And uh, the impression we had was that that came directly from above, from, from the, out of the minister or the premier's office. Although I can't confirm that, but that was the impression that was given. And so uh, Justice Romaine went away and, and uh, she had uh, an in-camera private meeting with Dr. Hinshaw where certain questions, four questions were put to Dr. Hinshaw. And then Justice Romaine had to determine whether or not uh, that, that information, whether this executive privilege applied. Now, just to explain this executive privilege, um, it's an important concept and uh, it is useful and it is somewhat democratic in that um, we, we do have an interest in having executive privilege in that, you know, we do want, you know, cabinet and the premier to be able to have open discussions about government policies and things like that. We, so we want to, we want uh, for our ministers to be able to speak up freely and not be concerned that, you know, that this is going to make its way into the public press and things like that. So this, the, the, there's a democratic purpose to be served there, but uh, what justice remain found was two important things. Firstly, that Dr. Hinshaw is not part of cabinet and that cabinet, that privilege does not extend to her. That's, that, was, that was significant. That's big. And secondly, uh, she said something very encouraging, even if we don't ultimately win the case, uh, because she said something that we've not heard from any other judge yet in cases of this kind. She's, she referred to a case called Oaks, which is the seminal case in Canada concerning section one of the charter, which we talked about the last time I was on your program. Mm -hmm. Section one is the part of the charter that the government relies upon in order to uh, justify infringement of, of individual freedoms on the basis of uh, broader public policy being in the public interest. What but, uh, Justice Romaine said essentially is that the public's interest in knowing about what about these conversations outweighed the importance of any potential cabinet privilege uh, outweighed that prejudice. And that was, that's the first time. Uh, and, and she was referring in that context to the Oaks, to the Oaks decision. And it's the first time we've heard uh, anything like that from any judge uh, in any of the cases that have been litigated along these lines. Remind us about the Oaks decisions okay. for those who are so, not. So this is the, uh, this will require a little bit of constitutional law uh, 101. So we have the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is the supreme law of the land. And where, to the extent that a law that is any, any type of uh, legislation or government order, government action, uh, where that, that law or government action 
violates one of the enumerated freedoms in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, that law is unconstitutional. And under Section 52 sub 1 of the Constitution, that law can be struck down by a court, okay, according to the rule of supremacy. And so what has happened is over the course of the, the life of the Charter, which came into being just over 40 years ago in April of 1982, our courts, especially uh, our appellate courts and the Supreme Court, have established a, a body of law, a series of really important decisions that we commonly refer to and that we use to, to decide cases of this nature. So in 1986, there was a case called Oaks, O-A-K-E-S. People can Google this if they like, and they'll find it sort of a, uh, a summary of it. But essentially, in Oaks, the Supreme Court of Canada enunciated, they set out a test. Um, so where um, you have a situation, for example, in, our, in the case we're talking about here in Ingram, where charter rights have been violated, um, the government uh, can bring forth uh, an ap application and say, okay, um, yes, let's say section seven, section 15 of the charter are violated, but that is justifiable in a free and democratic society and that law should survive. And so under section one, what the, the court must do is go into a weighing exercise where they examine whether or not um, the, this is a reasonable limit, uh, whether it is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, whether it's the least intrusive means. So there's a, a test. Uh, it's a three-part test to determine whether or not that law should be upheld. But the essence of the test is that does the public interest in having a certain law or order or government regulation upheld, does that outweigh the, the individual harm, that the harm that's being done to the individual whose rights are being violated? And thus far, in cases in Manitoba and British Columbia and Ontario, uh, that test has uh, that uh, test has always been weighed in favor of upholding these laws. Now, if you read those decisions carefully, though, for example, the Baudouin case um, and the Gateway case, uh, Baudouin case in BC and the and the Gateway decision in Manitoba, um, I think there uh, there's some judicial gymnastics going on there where those decision makers, those judges actually sidestepped the Oaks test. They didn't really uh, apply it in, in the way that we've seen it applied in, you know, by appellate courts in the past. Now, and, th and this is why I say what Justice Romaine did, I think is significant because uh, it's the, in, in her decision regarding um, uh, this executive privilege, uh, Mr. Rath and I agree it looks as though she's approaching this from the point of view of the Oaks test in the way that we've come to know what the Oaks test is. And that is, it's not an easy test to, to, to meet. It's, it's, a, it's been applied as a very strict test. Um, and uh, under section one, I would think as we learn more and more about COVID um, and what the real impacts of it were, what the real risks were, I think it's going to be more and more difficult, increasingly difficult for governments to uphold these types of, uh, of restrictions. Yeah, Can I just mention one other case that isn't mine that I think is really yeah, important? Yeah, go ahead. Um, section 6 of the Charter um, recognizes the right to mobility. And this was an afterthought in the Charter, really, for many, many years, because 
the Canadians never had a problem moving around the country or leaving the country. Well, today, uh, Canadians live in the world's largest prison. Over 6 million Canadians cannot travel within their country on a plane, a train, or a ship. And this was hugely debilitating in a country which uh, is, has the second largest landmass in the world and a country that was basically founded on the basis of completion of railroads, uh, the cross-country railroads. So these, these trains, these rail lines that were so important to the foundation of our country, over 6 million Canadians can't even get on these trains now. So there is a, an important case going on right now involving uh, Brian Peckford, and uh, he's the last living signatory to the charter. In fact, he helped write some of the sections of the charter. Uh, he has a, a brilliant lawyer, a colleague of mine uh, named Keith Wilson, who some of your viewers may know as the lawyer who was involved with the Freedom Convoy. He was in Ottawa throughout that. Anyway, uh, they've devised a very ingenious legal strategy to bring um, a challenge based upon Section 6 of the Charter. And um, this was done very deliberately for a couple of reasons. Uh, and this will explain why I'm, I'm mentioning this in the context of Section 1. Um, there's probably no other Charter right that has been so obviously violated than Section 6, right? It's just dead bang. It's obvious that, that the government has, has done this. Um, and, and so that part of it is not going to be hard to make out. Also, um, when you get into the section one analysis that I just described, um, this restriction on travel offers the government of Canada its least persuasive justification. So you take, for example, airplanes, okay? Um, and this data came out in a recent decision that was made, the viewers probably heard about about a month ago, where in the United States, the masking restriction was removed on airplanes. And in, as part of that case, scientific data came out that, that basically said that um, an airplane is about the safest place you can be in terms of clean air. Because all the air that's coming into that cabin, uh, there's no COVID in that air. So we're talking way up in the atmosphere. There's no COVID-19 cannot, cannot survive outside, let alone in high pressured air traveling at 500 miles an hour. So all the air in that cabin is coming from outside. Then when you get inside the cabin, they've got the most sophisticated HEPA filters you're going to find anywhere. So, so the, maybe the cleanest air you're going to get anywhere is in the cabin of an aircraft. And so if you just cast your mind back to the section one test and you ask yourself, okay, what is the public policy objective that is being met by not allowing people to get onto airplanes? And it be, what becomes really, really obvious in that context is that the travel restriction is has nothing to do with public health. It has everything to do with punishment of recalcitrant Canadians who have decided that they don't want this vaccine in their bodies. And so uh, I mentioned that to you because I think that's an important case to watch. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm very ebullient about the chances of, of success there, just because not only because it's such an obvious charter breach, so blatant, but also because the you know the section one uh, justification there uh, is not is not very strong is not very strong at all. If that case loses, there is going to be a mass exodus out of Canada. There, there already is. I'm talking to people all the time. Yeah, they're yeah. in the process of moving, leaving the country. They've lost faith that anything's going to change. That case is absolutely crucial because. Uh, and how did he ever get the Americans to support that? Well, because they stopped, the Americans are stopping Canadians at the border. It's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, but um, 
we know we know that uh, that there is worldwide uh, pressure. We, I mean, anybody who doesn't understand the extent to which global interests are are governing our our present rulers, their decisions, is simply not paying attention. I mean, only only it's only in the last couple of days that the Canadian government signed on to donate $1.3 billion per year to the Ukraine in perpetuity. What? That's, yeah. yeah, someone was telling me that. That's yeah. crazy. $3 million, $3 million donated to the World Economic Foundation in the midst of a pandemic where our country has historic debt, high inflation, high interest rates, uh, gas prices over $2 a litre, and, and our government is giving away money to Ukraine and to the World Economic Foundation. Who do you think is behind? Like, I hear this question coming from a lot of uh, intelligent people. Like, what is behind all of this? I mean, it's not governments doing this. It's something behind the governments. They'll use the word, it's elite. It's the elite. Um, <clears throat> I hear the WEF coming out quite a bit. What's your quick look at this like who is this fight with i think it well i come back to it and I, again people think maybe this is an oversimplification this is good versus evil yeah um and uh you know brian peckford agreed with me about this too the the west is an exception the west is not the rule the freedom the prosperity the human rights uh that we've enjoyed in the west in the western tradition is not is not the rule, it's the exception. You look around the world, it's the exception. And that's why everybody for the longest time has wanted to, to come here. And a big part of the reason why the West has been great is because we had God at the head of our state and where God is, people are free. And if you understand this, if you understand the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's unique yeah. because in Christianity and the Judeo-Christian faith, uh, or tradition, um, human beings are born with free will. We're made in the image of God. And, and because we have free will, ergo, we are free. Okay. Around the world, that, that assumption, in other parts of the world, that assumption is not made. No. Therefore, people are not, th are not free. And when you look at, at uh, where atheism is, you see, you see slavery. You see enslavement. You see poverty. You see starvation, you see wars, you see pogroms, you see genocides. In the 20th century, Nazi Germany, Soviet Union, Cuba, and Communist China accounted for over 100 million deaths in a century. They are the all-time champions. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the top four. What do they have in common? Atheistic states. Yep. Okay. So that's what's going on. I believe that is the that is the ultimate agenda. Even though I mean, our in our constitutions in Canada and the United States, what's made them unique is uh, from the from the outset we've had God at the head of the state, and this is right in our charter. Yep. The wording in our charter says that our state, all of our laws are judged by the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And by the way, the rule of law only exists in states where God is supreme where god is at the head of the state and and the the what we're up against here are people who want to make everything relative yeah, truth yeah. 
justice, morality, you name it, all of it is relative. And we, you know, history has shown that um, people cannot live peacefully in that environment. We, there must be standards uh, that people, we, we must aspire to be better than we are. Yeah, yeah. And and that's so the, good. You know that's the yeah. importance of having God at the head of the state, yeah. and uh, and and the people who are trying to destroy Canada uh, are trying to you know are trying to make Canada into an atheistic society. They won't win. Mm-hmm. I don't believe they'll win. No. Um, and uh, you know I'm just a lawyer fighting this, but I'm seeing this battle expressed in in the law. Mm-hmm. Take for example just the Hinshaw case. The government of Alberta knew, and Dina Hinshaw admitted under cross-examination that the orders that she was making were violating people's freedoms. She admitted it. I came back to it several times, and every time she admitted it. But she said it was justified because we had to save the few. We were violating the freedoms of the many to save the few. And for, for her, that is what justified it. And to me, that is a tacit admission that what the government was really after was expansion of its own powers. And the proof of this is in the pudding, because in the first stage of the first wave of the pandemic, what did the government of Alberta do? It went into the Public Health Act and invoked its own emergency powers, even though the Alberta government, Mr. Kenny now, they're taking Mr. Trudeau to court over the invocation of federal emergency powers. The provincial government of Alberta has their own emergency powers that they use, that they created in the Public Health Act to make Dina Henshaw the most powerful person in the history of our province. And and they use those powers and they use those levers. They still have them. And unless we take them away, they'll use them again. And this is why we have to keep... This is why we have to keep fighting. I think one of the shocking things to me... Well, there's two things. The first is what I call evil. And even if you're not a, even if you're not a religious person out there, there are just anybody who works in first responders from fire, paramedics, police, you know, and I know a ton of them and I worked in that area when I was a young man. Um, you begin to recognize whatever you want to call it, there's just this awful evil going on out there. So but even atheists have to recognize that and so the first thing I noticed was that was shocking how this evil was coming. The second thing was how few people would stand up. I'm interviewing the heroes around this nation who've lost their jobs, uh, removed from, I've even removed from churches because of their stand. I mean, it just goes on and on in some of the countries that I've interviewed these people. And like, when you look at the stats right now, you mentioned that in Western, was it just America, we had 100,000 deaths or Canada and America? Uh, in North America, we have a hundred thousand. That's reported deaths. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because I'm hearing experts say it's way beyond what's reported. Oh yeah. But if we have a hundred thousand people that they say died, how many lives did they save? Do they think, or just in the data they've given us? In Alberta, I'll just use Alberta's uh, statistics. Only four percent of four point four million people were ever exposed to the risk of what are called serious health outcomes. Those would be hospitalizations, ICU, or death. So only 4% of 4.4 million people were ever exposed to the risk of those. Now, within 
Now within, uh, so so 96% of the population didn't have anything to worry about from COVID, okay? And yet we are forcing vaccination upon uh, every man, woman, and child. And now with the Pfizer data coming out, we're finding out, for example, pregnant women. We were told it was safe for them. Well, now it's not, okay? They're admitting it? That, that's, that's been revealed. Under the, under the Pfizer dump, so so we use the we're using these experimental drugs, and and by the way, um, the fact that the vaccines were harming people was not new. I can tell you from going through Dr. Hinshaw's press conferences that uh, you know there were problems with the Moderna vaccines, uh, there were problems with AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca was was prohibited in Canada for a while. Uh, countries in Europe put a moratorium on the Moderna vaccine. So what Pfizer is revealing now isn't really new. They're just revealing in more detail. And, and, and it's shocking and it's, and it's, it's truly horrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, and the level of, of lying. And so part of one of the cases by way of segue, uh, Leon, one of the cases that we're building in our office is a vaccine harms class action. Now, uh, your viewers probably realize or, or have heard that there's something called an indemnity uh, as between governments and big pharma. Mm -hmm. Indemnity is basically a save harmless agreement, right? That would shield big pharma from being sued uh, because um, governments uh, pressed big pharma uh, to rush these, these, uh, these vaccines to market, even though they're experimental until 2023 and probably much longer based upon what we're learning about them. But that indemnity, however, is not infallible. In fact, it's subject to malfeasance and fraud. Well, we already have evidence of both. And, uh, and we also have evidence of a cover-up. There's the one that you talked about. But also, um, I can tell you in my own experience, uh, we have a particular client, a lady who's, uh, whose son was killed uh, by vaccine arms. And um, she had a dreadful time just getting the autopsy information. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when we got the auto autopsy information, it was very, very revealing. And our experts are telling us that this is a very typical vaccine harm uh, death. I mean, the, the, this is death of, an, of a young, otherwise flourishing, healthy young man. So this is just the beginning of some of these cases. So even though, even though these cases are, uh, strictly speaking, are barred, uh, that, is, that is going to change. The other thing is that the Canadian government has set up a a vaccine harm statutory scheme, uh, which I would only describe as laughable um, in terms of the levels of compensation and things like that. But it is a tacit admission that these vaccines do cause harm. It's a it's a prelude to a kiss that's coming. And I, I predict that um, these vaccine harms cases are probably going to be um, the biggest, the biggest class action. Uh, it'll probably even exceed, you know, the cases involving big tobacco. Because when you consider what 90% of, of the people just in North America have taken the vaccine, um, some form of it, and they're all, every single one of them uh, is a potential uh, plaintiff. And even people who have not taken the vaccine or have, so, have lost a loved one or had a loved one harmed or something like that, even they would be included in that type of class action. So yeah. that wave of that wave is coming. And I believe governments and big pharma know it's coming. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think that they're going to pay out something and still go home 
to bed with a stunning amount of billions of dollars in their accounts as corporations. They've done it before. Yep. They've yep. done it with yes, Oxycontin. They've done it with uh, you know, thalidomide again and again and again and again. This is how they do business. So if someone has, um, feels like they've been harmed and uh, by the vaccine, can they get a hold of you guys and get in yes. there? Is there? And Absolutely. then you'll help them look through the... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we what we're doing right now is we're we uh, we have over sixty plaintiffs. So we're building a class. That's one of the preliminary things we do when we do a class action. We're building a class of people, so uh, people can contact us, and uh, we'll provide them with advice and let them know whether we think that they have they have a claim. Usually they do, and um, and if they want to, then they can join they can join the class action and be and and be part of it. Right. A lot of people lost their jobs if it was like a government type of job, CN, CP, um, I mean, Pure Later, Canada Post, firefighters, first responders. I mean, crazily. And the other day, I'm speaking with a postal worker who lost their job at the end of all this, and they're, they've worked all the way through COVID without a vaccine. Now they're losing their jobs because now they won't take the vaccine. Like, is that, is that true, first of all? Yes, and uh, it's especially true of workers who are impacted by ministerial orders. For example, Minister Alagabra, who um, is the Minister of of Transport, he's the one who's responsible for this uh, restriction uh, that you and I, you know, talked about uh, that's affecting millions of Canadians, but is also affecting hundreds of thousands of Canadian workers. And so, of course, anyone who is uh, involved in the rail industry, airline industry, ship, you know, ships, um, they're all impacted by this. And there are also many large corporations who um, are connected to government. Uh, and I would say somewhat beholden to government right. who are imposing these mandates. So, for example, my firm represents about 80 workers who are who had worked for a company called CNRL, which is the second largest oil producing company in Canada. And uh, so that is a case that uh, we brought forward for wrongful dismissal and uh, also violation of, uh, of human rights. Uh, Imperial oil, I, we're, we're dealing with some, some people. Atco Gas, uh, you mentioned uh, Purulator, but we have uh, groups of firefighters, you know, city workers, uh, subway workers in Vancouver. Um, we we uh, it's 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 just incredible the number of people who are impacted but and continue to be impacted by these mandates, and um, we're fighting for them, but we're fighting for them in a bit of a different way than you and I have been discussing. Um, really, where we are acting on behalf of workers, whether they're unionized or non-unionized, and what's happened to most of them is that they've either been terminated, or they've been placed on something called an involuntary unpaid leave of absence which we say amounts to constructive dismissal. Yes, it is. Uh, for non-compliance. And so these people are, are out money and, and they are workers. They have families, they have wives, they have husbands, they have families to support. Some of them were close to retirement and this has upset that. Uh, they're losing their pensions. Um, they're having to sell their personal property in order to pay bills. Um, so it's a it's a horrendous, horrific story that's affecting vast numbers of people uh, who are part of the Canadian working class. And you know, just to connect the dots between what you and I were discussing earlier, Leon, about um, how this is an attack upon Western culture. 
you think about Canada in a broad sense, we're a working class country. And, and that is what has made Canada great and made it free, uh, is that we've had a very strong, flourishing uh, working class. Uh, there's a famous economist uh, named Dr. Milton Friedman. He won the Nobel Prize in economics in 1976. And he wrote several books, but he said something very, very uh, crucial and important in this context when we're talking about Canadian workers. Uh, he noted that you will never find anywhere, when you look throughout history, any class of people, particularly the working class, um, where political freedom and economic freedom are not inextricably tied together. In other words, you can have a situation where people have political freedom, but where they don't also have economic freedom, the political freedom is irrelevant. Uh, so when you think of, of the Western world, Canada, United States, we've had a flourishing working class. And so people here have had a lot of political power in the sense we've elected governments. We've had a say in what has happened. We call this democracy, right? In the Soviet Union, if you could go back and look at the Soviet Union's uh, um, constitution, and it rivaled the American constitution, it's beautiful. It, they have a charter of rights in there, all of it. Really? And it, it meant nothing because in the Soviet Union, people were not permitted to own private property. They were they had they had no economic freedom. Hmm. So without the economic freedom, they could not live out any of the political rights that were set out in their constitution. And so that is a cautionary tale for tale for Canadians. So it's very important. This fight on behalf of working class Canadians is very crucial to the freedom of all Canadians, because we don't have a flourishing working class uh, of people who who can earn enough money to to support their families to acquire personal property to and to retain it, um, you know, we're getting closer to this 2030 uh, agenda where, you know, you will own nothing and, and you'll be happy. Well, we're gonna have a lot of people owning nothing, but they won't be very happy. No. And we'll have a very few people owning almost everything. And that's the real agenda. It's such that's, an old lie. The story of COVID, if you really look at it. Yep. Uh, if at a 5,000 foot view, we've had this enormous shift of wealth from the working class to the uber, uber elites and the political class. So in other words, when you go to court, if you, you know, everyone wants to make sure this doesn't happen again. I hear this all the time. We all need to stand up so this doesn't happen again. And everyone wants to be able to change laws. What I'm hearing you say is, yes, we were trying to do that but also to go after finances is a smart thing to do then. Well, the approach that we're taking with these cases is we are seeking a declaration uh, from the court that people's human rights and their charter rights, for example, have been violated. But instead of asking the court to strike down that legislation, under section 24 sub one of the charter, a court has the authority to grant any other relief that a court can grant, including damages. And so what we're doing is we're hitting these these big uh, companies and governments in their pocketbooks. So, for example, in the CN case, we sued for over $100 million. Uh, in the CP case, it was over $250 million. And CNRL, again, it's well in excess of $100 million. And this is getting the, the intention of these uh, employers and governments. In fact, in the CN and CP cases, the government isn't even defending. They, they immediately asked us to enter into case management, uh, which almost invariably leads to, to settlement. Who did that? 
the the Canadian government and CP and CN Rail and mm -hmm. the Canadian government. We sued both of them, and and it was their lawyers who came to us and said, "Look, yeah, we don't we're not going to defend this lawsuit. We want to go into case management." Uh, and then um, the, the same mm -hmm. thing happened with the CNRL case. We just had a meeting last week with the court and and uh, it looks like those cases are going to be consolidated consolidated into a, a class action and the thing that's interesting about a class action is that they almost always settle they, um, very very rarely do you have a class action that goes to trial so um it's at, i mean it's early days but it appears that this strategy is is working but you know uh, it's it's my theory that 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 government that courts are going to be more likely to grant damages than they are to strike down government legislation but that these big companies and governments if you hit them in the pocketbook that is where they live right, right. and so that's the strategy uh, it's too early to say whether it's going to work ultimately but in early days it seems to be it seems to be somewhat effective now are they going to the way they're doing it, are they trying to bring this amount of money down so it's so low it's not like will the courts back up big enough amounts to hurt them well these are going to be large amounts just given the sheer number of plaintiffs involved um so so there are they are going to be big numbers of course you know settlement uh, in any settlement there's going to be a, a a compromise but what has been shown so far is a lack of appetite to fight with us i don't think that anyone any of these big companies or governments want to go before court and try to justify a vaccine mandate try to justify it as a cause for dismissal try to justify it as a bona fide occupational requirement in other words something that a person must have as a condition of their employment i think we're past the post on that argument i think that with the pfizer dump and what we know now uh and we're just it, you know in the early stages of what we're learning about the harmful impacts of these vaccines versus their 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 vanishing benefits um you know uh i i i i'd be amazed if any of these companies or governments actually want to go to court and and have that have that case uh actually okay. adjudicated the, the, i've got a question for you i'm hearing stuff about these digital ids that canada is supposed to be a a pilot project country for that do you know anything about that Yes, um, the digital identification is something that has been pioneered by the Chinese government. And of course, um, like just about anything else, uh, the Chinese government is not a model that we should be following. No. Our prime minister has publicly stated many times that he's a great admirer of the Chinese government. Um, that, that, sh that should have been alarming when he said it many years ago. Of course, uh, what we've seen in the in the pattern of his behavior and that of his of his government, it, it seems that uh, he's he's more than an admirer; he's an acolyte. Uh, and this digital ID is is very very important because it uh, it's an invasion of privacy, and again, it's a reduction of freedom. Because if the government can keep track of all of your movements, and uh, incidentally, we just learned that they were doing this anyway during COVID by illegally tracking our movements through cell phone data. Now, you, know, uh, you just said something that I, I want to talk a little bit like, because people will tell me, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you get all your data on one spot, it's going to make everything easier, but it limits, and it's already taking away our privacy. Explain that a little bit more. Well, the really astonishing thing about it is, is um, uh, 
its connection to digital currency. Okay. Hmm. Uh, because what's what's coming, what's what's being proposed, um, and what already exists in other parts of the world, Italy just signed on to this, but, but China's had this for a while. Instead of uh, Jane Doe or John Smith getting a paycheck and going out and spending their money on what they want to spend their money on, what they're going to get is they're going to get uh, a digital currency, but it's going to be programmable. So what this means is your is your employer or or the government whoever you're receiving money from, you'll get you'll get this digital currency, but it's programmable. It's programmable to the extent that you will only be permitted to spend money on the things that you are permitted to spend money on. So for example, wow. if if uh, John Smith really likes your podcast, Leon, and wants to make a donation to support you, uh, they won't be able to do that because their currency will be programmed. So you have lost and your freedoms. So, right, so the digital currency or, or the digital ID is connected to this digital currency. And of course, again, coming back to my example about Dr. Milton Friedman and why it's so prescient is the removal of economic freedom is a precursor to, to the destruction of political freedom. Where we have economic freedom, where cash is king, where we have, we're, we're able to make our own economic choices then we have political freedom. Uh, we have freedom to travel. We have freedom to support the causes that we want to support. We have freedom to support the businesses who express our values and not woke ones who do, do not support our values. Um, that economic freedom is huge and it's, it's, it's fundamental to our society, to Western culture. And so the digital currency is, is uh, not only a denial of uh, an invasion of severe invasion of privacy, but also it's connected to this digital currency, which will impact even down to our spending habits. And it amounts to, in my estimation, uh, a form of, of economic and political slavery. So overall, if you talk with someone overall and you say, rather than centralize all this data, um, it's better for us that you've got to go to uh, the hospital side to get your healthcare data. You got to go to the government side to get your license data, uh, so that that's what we're telling people, right? Well, licensing is an interesting example because uh, libertarians will tell you that licensing is totally is totally unnecessary. Hmm. And you know there are a lot of things that you need a license for now that you didn't need a license for previously. And uh, there's a strong case to be made for saying that you know we really don't need all of these uh, licenses. Well, take, take, for example, take, for example, the gun registry. Something very astonishing happened yesterday and a lot of people missed it. We have a federal minister who is responsible uh, for public safety. And he actually said that the federal gun registry was responsible for tracking a man named Mark Lapine, who in 1989 killed a number of women at a college in Quebec. That was a bold-faced lie. Not only did the gun registry not exist in Canada until 1995, but Mr. Lapine killed himself before he was even discovered by the police. So you see, I just bring this up as an example of licensing. If you go through, and I actually wrote a paper that was published uh, online a couple of years ago, um, gun control and uh, gun confiscation 
is one of the hallmarks of totalitarian regimes. Yes. People don't know this about, about the Nazis and the Soviets and other countries. There's a reason why those, why the people could not rise up and revolt. They had no guns. No. What you saw in Australia during the height of the pandemic when people were being controlled with rubber bullets, that's because in the 1990s, the Australian government completely disarmed their populace. I don't own any guns myself, but I do know that the right to, to own a gun, own a firearm, has been in the past a bulwark against oppression. It's interesting. I mean, I agree with you that healthy people need the ability to protect themselves. Well, this has been great. I could go on for another couple of hours, but uh, thank you so much for, you know, giving us a look at what's going on across the country with vaccines, some of the court cases. And uh, I, I want to talk again, you know, wait a little bit and see what's happening with these court cases. I'd love for you to come back and and fill us in. Let us know the results and what's been happening. Thank you so much, Lake. Happy to. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Leon, and all the best. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.